Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in little doses from some of the most creative thinkers on Earth. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone. Big Think's producers surprise our guests and me, your host, with ideas that we're not prepared to discuss. I'm so happy to be here today with Maria Popova, writer and curator of Brain Pickings, a labor of love that has grown into a massive web media presence. It's a blog, it's a newsletter, a Twitter feed, and more. Maria started Brain Pickings in 2006 as a weekly digest to send to her colleagues at work at an ad agency. The idea was to inspire them and herself each week with ideas from outside their field. Now it's followed by millions of people all over the world, but it remains a labor of love in which Maria draws life lessons from bits of interestingness that she discovers and shares with us, her readers. Welcome to Think Again, Maria. Such a pleasure to be here. There's this thing you do, like your brain pickings, it gives or extrapolates from the things that you read and encounter life lessons on many occasions, mm -hmm. but there's nothing canned or cheesy about it. Like they speak very much directly to me and to so many of your readers. I just think there's so much stuff out there on the web and in print that attempts to give life lessons to people that somehow feels like it was pre-packaged or pre-invented in order to make a million dollars. Your mm. stuff feels very authentic, I guess, Thank because you're you. writing it for yourself. Well, that's, I think, one part of it. Another important thing, one thing that's happened over the years is that I've kind of veered further and further back into history, and the vast majority of what I read and write about is old stuff, stuff yeah. that does not exist on the internet. And I think there's something powerful about coming across these ideas from thinkers that are decades, centuries, sometimes millennia old that really speak to the things we tussle with today but are not framed in a self-helpy way because nobody thought in that way before. Right. I'm amazed that you're able to kind of penetrate the noise of the internet with these things which are often they're old, they're obscure, they obscure shouldn't be... Obscure things by dead they, people, they, yeah, brought they to you daily. <laughs> yeah, they shouldn't be sexy or whatever, they shouldn't cut through the noise, but they do. So, according to a 2012 article in Mother Jones, you read like 12 to 15 books a week. I have two questions about that. Uh, first of all, how the hell do you read 12 to 15 books a week, and can you teach me <laughs> how to do that? And secondly, what have you noticed over the years about which ones are tending to speak to you out of all this? Is there anything that ties them mm. together? Well, first, about the statistic, I would caution against taking it to mean something more than it means. I dip into 12 to 15 books, some of which I read in full, cover to cover, but I read a lot of anthologies, a lot of diaries and letters, okay. and those are pretty fragmentary packages of ideas. So you can dip into Steinbeck's journals and read, you know, 20 entries, and that's already so much. Right. But some are things that you have to read beginning to end. I also love children's books. I resist yeah. the label children's books because I think the best of them are very deeply philosophical and full of perennial ideas. Those don't take that much time to read, but they do take time to reflect on. And that's kind of the caveat to the 12 to 15. As far as the other question, the things that stand out and last, you know, to me, I'm always pulled toward 
anything that helps me figure out how to live a meaningful and substantive and, and good and kind life. And that can be anything. That can be philosophy or science or, or so-called children's books. Right. I would hesitate to kind of pinpoint specific genre or... Yeah, yeah, no, I, I like what you're saying about children's books and about not trying to not specifically categorize them as such. Like, I've written children's books specifically for the Korean market. And I love children's writing, but I've noticed that professionally as a writer, there's kind of a dividing line between people who are considered children's authors and people who are not. I mean, that's changed a mm. little. There's some fluidity, but there's a little something of a stigma, perhaps, you know, in adult publishing for people who publish children's books, like it's silly or superficial or something. And it's ridiculous. I completely agree with you that some of the deepest writing out there yeah, is it, in children's books. It really is alarming to me because it ghettoizes ideas and types of writing. I'm actually working on a book review for the New York Times that is about children's books. One of them is this beautiful picture book biography of Virginia Woolf. Right. And apparently the British publisher was like, well, this is marketed as a young adult title and not a children's <laughs> title, so I am including it and I'm taking it as an opportunity to talk about these arbitrary lines that yeah. really are a disservice to the reader and to the interior world of the child, which is ultimately what it's all about. I think we must blame the marketers for that or, or the publishing company. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have brought a poem to read today at my behest, and I thank you for that. You also said that you could speak a little bit about why you chose it, but maybe let's hear it first and then hear that? I would preface it by why, because then it reads differently. Go for it. So I am very, have always been very fascinated by what Carl Jung called the unlived life. So all of these alternative scenarios that didn't happen, that we kind of carry with us along the lives that did happen, in large part for me mm -hmm. because my life right now was hugely determined by a very specific, spontaneous, impulsive choice that I made as a teenage girl at age 15 that <laughs> kind of led to everything else that is my life now. And so I've always been very aware of this Rube Goldberg machine of chance and choice that pushes us down the life path that we have. Right. And so a few years ago, my friend Amanda and I discovered, and, and by discovered I mean we arrived embarrassingly late to the work of the great Polish poet and Nobel laureate Wisława Szymborska. And there is one poem of hers that really spoke to me because it is about all of these possibilities and the choices and chances that shape a life. So that's okay. what I'm going to read. It's called Possibilities. Great. Possibilities. I prefer movies. I prefer cats. I preferred the oaks along the Varta. I preferred Dickens to Dostoevsky. I prefer myself liking people to myself loving mankind. I prefer keeping a needle and thread on hand just in case. I prefer the color green. I prefer not to maintain that reason is to blame for everything. I prefer exceptions. I prefer to leave early. I prefer talking to doctors about something else. I prefer the old, fine-lined illustrations. I prefer the absurdity of writing poems to the absurdity of not writing poems. I prefer where love's concerned non-specific anniversaries that can be celebrated every day. I prefer moralists who promise me nothing. I prefer cunning kindness to the over-trustful kind. I prefer the earth and civvies. I prefer conquered to conquering countries. I prefer having some reservations. I prefer the hell of chaos to the hell of order. I prefer Grimm's fairy tales to the newspaper's front pages. 
I prefer leaves without flowers to flowers without leaves. I prefer dogs with uncropped tails. I prefer light eyes since mine are dark. I prefer desk drawers. I prefer many things that I haven't mentioned here to many things I've also left unsaid. I prefer zeros on the loose to those lined up behind a cipher. I prefer the time of insects to the time of stars. I prefer to knock on wood. I prefer not to ask how much longer and when. I prefer keeping in mind even the possibility that existence has its own reason for being. Thank you so much for picking that and reading it to well, us. Well, thank you to the late, great Vishlava Shimborska. I love this refrain of, I prefer. I feel like there's a great kind of self-compassion in that honoring of her own preferences. I feel like when I look out there at kind of what comes at us all the time from advertising and just in the world we live in, that it all seems to be saying, you ought to do this, you ought to be that preference. It's interesting. Like, I mean, I see it as that and its opposite. Hmm. It's almost to me a meditation on free will and the illusion thereof. You know, she prefers, we prefer all of these things, but they're so arbitrary. You know, they're so right. arbitrary and we have to convince ourselves that we prefer them by virtue of our own choice. But some of them are just chance, you know, you don't choose to be a conquered or a conquering country, sure. it happens to you, and then you come to prefer it. And all of them, because it's such a long list, I think there's this element of convincing oneself of the power of choice when so much is really chance. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the other line that really struck me in there, I prefer the absurdity of writing poetry to the absurdity of not writing poetry. I oh, think that's yes. so beautiful. And <laughs> The world wants to say, poet, you can't make any money at poetry. You can't, you know, it's a foolish thing to do with your life, etc. Well, it, it's funny. I, ha I had my friend Amanda, who you've had on the show, Amanda yeah, Palmer, Palmer um, yeah. read this poem for me, and we recorded it for Brain Puckings. And at the end, I mean, she supports her art, the old-fashioned way of patronage. It's free, and people donate, and that's how she makes her music, you know, right. and, and that's how I do Brain Pickings, too, you know. And so at the end, I encourage people to go to support her music, and I said something like, because I prefer the absurdity of supporting artists to the absurdity of not supporting artists. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's so true. So I have more things I want to talk to you about, but maybe they'll come up in the context of this next perhaps, part. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. So this is the part of the show where you and I are in the same boat. We do not know what they have chosen for us. These are old Big Think videos or new ones on any subject. What do we have here? So this is William Shatner, who was here recently, on friendship and his friendship with Leonard Nimoy. I always knew it was difficult to make friends. I, you know, and, and of course you define the meaning of friends. I had to struggle a lot in under school before college. I had a lot of stuff I had to deal with externally, fights and stuff like that to protect myself. Then when I got older, I had so many things to do I was an actor at an early age, and I was always dashing off. So that making friends was a skill I, I didn't know you make friends. Like, have you ever wondered what an opera singer goes through to have that divine voice? It's a skill that's learned. You exercise that muscle the way a, muscle, a bodybuilder builds their biceps. You can learn to do anything. I made a friend with Leonard that I've often asked people, do you have a friend? Do you have a friend? And 
you know, they're, they have to puzzle about it. And I, I think that's what marriage is. You make a friend, and now it's memorialized in writing. And, but, but there's an element of passion there that takes it somewhere else than the friendship I'm talking about. That's a very difficult thing to do, to have that, the brotherly love that I'm talking about. But it's possible, and that's what Leonard might have taught me. I love this. I really, really love it, in part because my, one of my New Year's resolutions this year was to be much more deliberate about how I use the word friend, because I think we have gotten to this place in culture where we've commodified the term, and it's, you know, somebody that's a distant acquaintance that you met once and you want to name drop somewhere, oh, you know, my friend so-and-so, and it's such a disservice to friendship, and I've made this rule for myself to only ever call a friend somebody who knows my interior life and whose interior life I know, and I mean, these are friends, you know, people that you've held their newborn. And It's funny you say that because I just tweeted yesterday something about how how many public figures I've heard say my friend Christopher Hitchens like I said <laughs> if I hear one more person say, said if I have a dollar if I had a dollar for every time someone said my friend Christopher Hitchens I said either this guy had a lot of friends, or these people are a lot of self-promoting jerks. Oh, but, but also, he was such a curmudgeon, <laughs> and it's so funny that they, <laughs> they paint him to be this gregarious, affable, multi-friended yeah, yeah. Kind of person. No, but so I totally hear you on the sort of promotional, mm. you know, friendship. Uh, yeah. But, this, but the, skill, go ahead, yeah. The, the skill aspect, I think that is the deciding factor. It, the measure of friendship is not how many times you've had coffee with somebody, you know, or do you have their, do they follow you back on Twitter? The measure of friendship is how much both of you have been willing to show up for the friendship, how much self-forgiveness and forgiveness you bring, and most of all, how willing you are to say, I fucked up, because in any friendship, right. there comes a point when people fuck up, and friendships fall apart over the inability of one party to admit having hurt the other. Yeah, I, this almost made me cry listening, yeah, watching him too. do that. Like, I just feel like... Because he was almost crying. Yeah, and I just feel like there's a special poignancy to male friendship in our culture, at least mm -hmm. like in terms of the some of the difficulties he was describing of, you know, being open, sharing your inner life with someone. I think generally in our culture, women are better at that. I will go out on a limb and say that which is why real male friendships in movies or like father-son moments where there's reconciliation pretty much always make me cry. I yeah. just think there's just so much posturing that can happen and so much self-protection. I'm sure this is true for many women too. Mm. This has been my... You know, it's interesting. We all bring our perspective to it for you, the male friendship. For me, as a queer woman, having women friends, you know, sometimes the self-protection comes from what he said about the difference between a marriage and a friendship. Where is that mm -hmm. line where, you know, when, when does a friendship become more than friendship where the possibility exists? And how do you protect yourself from that? How do you protect the integrity of the friendship from that? And that's right. a difficult line to walk. Yeah, I mean, this idea of friendship being a skill. You know, Aristotle wrote beautifully about friendship and the conditions that are necessary for a true friendship. Right. And he basically said that having kind of abstract fondness for a person 
is necessary, but there's also the daily presence. It's very hard to sustain a friendship that is just an idea and that, that is only supposed to kind of manifest when things get rough or when the person needs you. You have to be right. kind of woven into the fabric of each other's lives. And that aspect, I agree with Shatner on. It, right. it is a skill, especially, you know, in New York where everybody is so overcommitted and the kind of right. hamster wheel of busyness that we put ourselves on. Sure. It takes a skill and a deliberate intention to hop off of it and make time for your friends, not just when it's a crisis moment. Right. Well, what do you think about the issue of compatibility? Because I think about this a lot. Like, I have different friends. With some of them, it's like there's just an improv energy. There's just a flow. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you could get on the phone with them five years from now after not having talked to them, and it would, it would, there, that energy would be going back and forth. Others, they're extremely different from me, there's, and it's a different kind of work. Which friendships are worth preserving and how do you decide, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to not have really had any problems with friends in my life. I think one friendship maybe kind of dissolved naturally and I've thought about it a lot. For me, I'm a big believer in cutting your losses. When you feel that something is getting worse rather than better despite your best intention, your best effort. And right. to me, the measure for when to extricate yourself from a friendship or any situation really is when you begin to feel like it's forcing you to contract yourself rather than expanding yourself, where you have to do too much pretzeling to protect the other person essentially from themselves, from their own vulnerabilities. Right, and right. when you start tiptoeing around who you are in order to remain in a friendship or a relationship or a situation, sure it's probably time to go. What if you were the only person that by simply being patient and having a bit more compassion like, could actually sort of nurture that person out of, I mean, obviously you can't save someone who's like on a downward uh, spiral see, to death or the, whatever. That's but, the slippery slope though, okay. because I think it's very seductive to see oneself as the person who could change somebody's <laughs> Pathology, essentially. That's narcissism or something? I mean, it's a form of, I think it's a noble impulse ultimately to be able to help, but it's also a form of arrogance to think that even though this other person has the same patterns in every relationship in their life, you'd be the special (laughs) one that can love them out of their pain. And (laughs) I think that's a (laughs) self-defeating strategy most of the time. Yes, that's probably true. Okay, well, shall we see what the next one is? Let's do it. That we've got? Okay, cool. This one is, oh, Howard Gardner talking about multiple intelligences in the workplace. Yeah, he was on this podcast as well. And I, I su- listened. Oh, you did. <laughs> I ultimately cut it out, but I surprised him by talking about the sex pistols. Like at some point, <laughs> I was like, I don't know what. Oh, he was sort of against rebellion for rebellion's sake. And mm. so I was like, oh, so you're not a big fan of the sex pistols. And then he was just like completely blank. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> There's well, a cultural chasm here. Were. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, so we moved on. No, granted, I would have had the same reaction. <laughs> I have, like, no idea other than their name. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Not engaged. Oh, they're, they're, they're fun, when, they're fun when you're 16 and living in the suburbs and uh, hating your life. In any workplace now, there are many different roles. And there are many different ways in which people can fulfill those roles. And here's where the idea of multiple intelligence is very helpful, because indeed, some of the intelligences are quite cognitive. 
like linguistic and logical mathematical. Others have to do with how you deal with other people, interpersonal intelligence. And of course, some of the intelligences are very much tied to the nature of the work. Another thing is putting together teams. And I'm going to use myself as an example. I put together research teams, and I used to look for people who were just like me. And after a while, I realized that's kind of stupid. One of me is enough. And now I try to put together teams of students or of colleagues where they have complementary kinds of intelligences. And there's huge amounts of evidence from other researchers that problems are more likely to be solved if you put together people who have different expertises rather than just putting together every person looking the same. When it comes to leaders of organizations, they not only need to have some blend of intelligences themselves, but it's very, very important for them to realize that not everybody who they work with is going to think the same way. And the more they can pluralize their messages, present them in different kinds of ways, or make use of other people who have other kinds of intelligences, the better. I love him. I, I did my undergraduate thesis largely around his original theory of multiple intelligences, but every time I watch him, I'm so distracted by the fact that he looks so much like my grandmother. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I spent half the time, you know, kind oh, of contemplating just the facial mimicry and features that are just so similar. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I love him, and I think his work has done a tremendous amount to change how we think about people's value, people's intellectual, yeah. creative value in society. It's interesting, you know, what he says about plurality is really alarming today because so much of the conflict that we see, especially as it plays out in social media, right. is a failure to invite plurality into one's life. I mean, right. it, it, a lot of the discontentment stems from the assumption of, I believe this is right, and therefore you must believe this is right, and because you don't, you're a crappy human being. Right. You know? and yeah, it, that's really a It's a very reductionist way to put it. Media. Yeah, but it's, it's a failure of honoring the multiple intelligences that people have in, in thinking about some of these large and largely unanswerable questions. I, I was recently reading this piece from the 70s by a philosopher named Amelie Rorty. She writes essentially about what Gardner talks about in terms of the fit between the person and the culture. And, and she right. says, a person who is trapped in a society that values different things will be valued differently. So basically, if you're a person who you know, saves money and is in a society where people spend wildly, you would be thought of as a crazy person right, but, right. And, the, and vice versa. But the point being that if your type of intelligence is not honored by the standards of the culture right. in which you live, you will come to kind of internalize a story about yourself that you are unvaluable or unworthy that is not true in a universal sense, but is true within the limitations and beliefs of the society in which you live. Yeah, I think that is so true. There's a lot of opportunity in America, but we are such a commerce-driven society in yeah. so many ways. And so there's always the like, what's the bottom line? You know, what's, what's it worth kind of thing. But also, in addition to being commerce-driven, I think we're also incredibly almost fetishistic of reason and the, would Gardner, you know, one of the seven intelligences right. is the mathematical intelligence. And I think as I've grown older, I've come to weigh things differently. You know, the, the most mathematically intelligent person I know by far 
is also the most ungenerous and unkind and <laughs> socially ungracious person I know. And it's it's a, right. maybe it's a trade-off, maybe it's not, but earlier in life I would have been like, oh, that's okay that they are just yeah. behaving horribly because they're brilliant, you know? Right. But I think as you get older, you come to see that the emotional and social intelligence, which Gardner added to the theory as he developed it, the original edition did not have social and emotional. Oh, okay. I find these increasingly valuable in terms of, I mean, back to the point of what makes a good friend, what makes a good member of a community, what makes a nourishing relationship and all of those things. Years ago, when I was working in a coffee bar in Newark, New Jersey, it was my first job after college, and I was the only person, I think, commuting from Manhattan to Newark, New Jersey. Wow! Um, that's a long story. <laughs> Way to salmon against the current. <laughs> yeah, long story for another time. But during the long commute, I was reading um, Plato's Republic. There are kind of fascistic elements of the Republic. It describes a sort of ideal society. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I really liked was that, you know, there was the idea that there was this omniscient ability to sort of identify what people's strengths were at an early age. You know, you'd maybe mm -hmm. test them or just see what their talents were and then kind of channel them or th encourage them in directions that would be beneficial both to themselves and society. Yeah. See, I wonder if that is kind of the grass is greener type of thing because, you know, I grew up in Europe where the model is very much to shove you down whatever life path you're determined to be fitted for very early in life. So right. you go to specialized schools and I right. worked very hard to get out of there and to come here for this kind of the glory of the liberal arts education <laughs> model where you're promised to kind of discover yourself in the course of your education. And right. I actually ended up starting brain pickings out of disillusionment with that because what happened was that I was shoved into this industrialized conveyor belt of education where, right. you know, a middle-aged white man in front of a PowerPoint slide was reading <laughs> off the PowerPoint slide to a lecture hall of 400 kids, sending them home and standardized testing them on the PowerPoint slide. And to me, that did nothing for figuring out who I was and what I wanted to stand for. And so, yeah. it, and meanwhile, you know, I was working four jobs to pay for this uh, glorious experience, which was not that stimulating. So I think there's the flip side of allowing for the blossoming of right. your personhood to happen naturally and not kind of predetermining just because it's sprouting in this one particular way, it must be predestined for something. Sure, yeah. No, I don't, I mean, you can't tell when someone is very young and... Absolutely, and you know, in, in defense of my school, I went to a great school. I just was so clueless about it, so unprepared. I mean, I really, I came from the 99% of Bulgaria into a school that was like the 1% of America and thought right. I was Americanized enough to, I had no idea. And only in the last year or so did I discover the glory of the seminar. I mean, there were all these small, <laughs> wonderful right. classes. Right. I, could have, I could have just done that. And also, it never occurred to me to drop out. This is an American notion. There, I, it, had I known that this was another option available to me, I would have probably done it. You know, that was not a notion. Never, not a notion in my American family. <laughs> there was no way. No but at way. least the term exists. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. In Hungarian, there is no word for dropping out. Like this is right. not a thing. It's just not a thing. Yeah, you, yeah. You just go and do it. Mm. So let's see what we've got for the third and final round. This is John Kabat-Zinn on the science of identity. If you put people in a scanner and tell them to just do nothing, just 
rest in the scanner, don't do anything at all. It turns out that there's a region that's known as the default mode network that just lights up, that just all of a sudden gets very, very active. And that's called the default mode network because when you're told to do nothing, you default to activity in this mode. And when you inquire what's going on there, a lot of it has to do with mind wandering, the self-referencing, our favorite subject, which is me, of course. And those narratives are a form of self-reference. When you train people in MBSR, you find that another area of the cortex lights up more lateral after eight weeks of training in mindfulness, and that that area doesn't have a, a linear time-based narrative. It's just the experiencing of the present moment in the body, breathing in, breathing out. We're like driving the car with the brake on, with the emergency brake on. And if we learn how to just kind of release it, everything will unfold with a greater sense of life unfolding rather than you're driving through it to get to some great pot of gold at the end, which might just be your grave. It makes me think of that famous quip attributed to Mark Twain, who may or may not have said it, because almost everything is attributed to Mark Twain or Voltaire on the internet or Einstein. But uh, <laughs> it says, the worst things in my life never happened to me. And it's true, you know, we go in these spirals and these stories that we buy into. Right. It makes me think of what Shatner said too about the muscle and bodybuilding and as somebody who actually competed in bodybuilding, I'm very cognizant of how much the energy we invest in repetition ends up building structures, bu building right. modes of being. And the stories that we tell ourselves very much become grooves about who we are, about how the world is, about who other people are and what they want. Right. And it's very tempting to keep indulging them and kind of deepening the grooves. And, you know, I've been meditating for many years now, and one thing that never ceases to astonish me as just how default the default network is. However intentional you may be in, in trying to stay with the present experience, when push comes to shove, we right. default to this way of very anxiety-driven, reactive way in the world. And you know, I was talking to my mother yesterday, and she's having a bit of a midlife crisis. You know, she's going to be quitting her job that she's been at for 20 years and okay. kind of trying to figure out what to do. And, and I said, Mom, why don't you try meditation? You know, it's mm. been very useful to me. And, and she said, well, I don't know. Every time I sit down, my mind is like yeah. racing. And so <laughs> that's I can't the point. do it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the <laughs> exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. But so many people say this. So many intelligent people fall to this completely circular logic of, yeah. I'm bad at it, therefore I shouldn't try it. <laughs> right. oh, it's not for me. My inner mind is too noisy. Like, right. <laughs> are you, so I have meditated off and on. Have you been, are you doing it like every day for years? Or? Every day in the morning for 15 to 25 minutes. Yeah, that's great. And what's great. been very helpful to me actually, there's a meditation and mindfulness teacher based in DC named Tara Brock. Oh yeah, yeah, I know who that is, yeah. She's amazing, she's changed my life. She records her classes, so right. every week, it, it's on iTunes, it's just like a free podcast. Every week she does one lecture that's on the kind of philosophical dimensions, very much in the spirit of John Kabat-Zinn, right. and one guided meditation between 10 and 25 minutes maybe. Okay. And so I do those, and I actually have been doing the exact same guided meditation since I found her 
six, seven years ago. Okay. Yeah. This business of the narrative that goes on in your head, yeah, I mean, it's pernicious and it's constant and we're just not aware of it. It reminds me of something in your friend Amanda Palmer's book, The Art of Asking. You know, she's an artist. She talks about the voices in her head that are like, you're a crappy artist, you're yeah. faking it, you're a phony, you know, you don't deserve to be where you are, etc. And like, I just think that is so kind of universally true for anybody who yeah. puts themselves out there in any way. But, you know, and also in the book, she writes that and then she says, well, you know, when you're an artist, nobody's going to touch your head with a magic wand and say you're an artist you have to do it with your own handmade magic wand and I think meditation and mindfulness help because when the voices come as they inevitably do like you say for anybody who's putting right. a piece of their heart into the world right then you're able to step aside and say hello voices I hear you there you are yeah have a seat you know <laughs> let's hang out exactly. but you don't internalize them you, you recognize them as this kind of instinctive function of your mind, but they're just a presence. They're just another thing that you sit with. Yeah, and I think the real power there is no one's going to give you a magic wand and dismiss the things in your mind that want to hold you back, you know? Like, well, but or, or, or you can try. I mean, I think that's why capitalism has been so effective, because we think that, you know, the promotion and the title and the certain amount of paycheck right. and this and that, all these external validations are essentially a way to try to achieve that sense of the inner calm, but of course there's the hedonic treadmill that makes it never enough because every new thing right. requires more and more, you know? So, but what do you think all, like, everyone is meditating now, you know, suddenly? This is, a, <laughs> I mean, people have been for thousands of years, but like, there is a thing now of people knowing about meditation and doing it in a secular context. Um, what about like Bertrand Russell and people like that? How did they get you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Bertrand Russell, as I know you are. Yes, probably the greatest philosopher who ever lived. Yeah, I... Him I, and Martha Nussbaum. <laughs> I don't know her and now must find out more about her, but Bertrand Russell I would like to bring back to life and adopt as my surrogate grandpa or yep. something. <laughs> How does he get there? You know, like, they, he, I doubt he was meditating. So I am of two minds about meditation as it's been for lack of a better word, commodified, especially in kind of Silicon Valley world where yeah. everything's about optimizing your performance and, you know, getting a headset to help you meditate better because that's going to be make you... I mean, there's a tipping point past which people can come to see meditation as another checklist item on the good life and what it means to be a perfect person in right. the world today. And they just do it as this kind of rote... I, I, don't, I don't even know. It becomes a commodity. And I think that's dangerous. But to your question about Bertrand Russell, the point here, and John Kabat-Zinn's point, is not about meditation. It's about mindfulness, which meditation can help cultivate, but it's not the only way. And, and there have been plenty of people throughout the history of humanity who have developed a way to live a mindful life that have not sat down for 15 minutes on a cushion. Bertrand Russell was one of them. You know, when you, yeah. when you read Education and the Good Life or This I Believe or all of his books, there's a very deliberate, contemplative quality to his mind. You can tell is mindful, even if it's not subscribed to a formal practice at all. I sometimes think that both writing and reading, if done kind of consciously and with intention, are, are in a sense forms of meditation, yes. mindfulness meditation. Yes, which is why I always it's interesting we come full circle. You began by asking <laughs> me about the 
number of books that I read and how, you know, I get a lot of questions of that nature, mostly from journalists, because there's this belief that speed reading somehow makes you better at reading, but it actually makes you worse at reading. It makes you less reflective, less contemplative. Yeah. I am not a fast reader. I would right. never wish to be a fast reader, you know. But, but it's, it's interesting because it only, it really speaks just to the culture, statistical culture we live in, because the only reason that statistic is out there is that at some point, some journalist asked me something about how I read. And yeah. in an effort to talk about the breadth of the reading, right. you know, the reason I read this many books is not because I want to have a greater number of them, but because I dabble into all of these different fields and disciplines and you know it's kind of a tentacled way and it also speaks to your selectivity and like what you choose right, but what and what you don't them was you know. the statistic was yeah, the yeah, number yeah, yeah. not the nature right 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 <laughs> exactly well maria popova this has been as i knew it would be a wonderful conversation thank you so much for coming on think thank again thank you so today. much for having me and for having this fantastic show out in the world And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed the show on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you haven't done so already, I urge you to please take a minute and do so. It helps us tremendously. I will be back next week with Nikhil Goyal, who is an education expert. He's 20 years old and he's written a book about what's wrong with public education in America and it's very different from a lot of the critiques that you often hear. It's a really interesting conversation and I hope to see you then.